Hi everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Learning from the Wild. In this episode, we're going to talk with Dr. Pamela Plotkin. She is the director of the Texas Sea Grant Organization. This organization focuses on improving the quality of the ocean. So we're excited to talk to Dr. Pam with her many years of experience and get to know a little bit more about the conditions of the ocean, how they've improved and what we can do better. So without further ado, let's just jump right into the episode. So, so thank you so much, uh, Pam, for coming on this interview with us. We are so excited to, to talk to you. Um, basically, we are just here to hear your experiences from working as the director of the Texas Sea Grant and how you came about in this position and just learn more about you and, and your field where you work at. And we just want to start off with, at, with asking you, why did you choose to study wildlife sciences? What motivated you? When I was an undergraduate student, I was attending Penn State University in State College, Pennsylvania. And I started out uh, wanting to become a veterinarian because to me, that was the only pathway I knew of to work with animals. And I loved animals from the time I can remember uh, my earliest memory. And um, I loved uh, watching wildlife documentaries on TV. I, um, I loved being outdoors as a child. And I had grown up in, in New York City in Manhattan. And so living in a concrete jungle was um, torture for a child who wanted to be outdoors and wanted to see animals and be with animals. And those few opportunities that I did have to get outdoors on family vacations were just priceless to me. And and so it was, uh, you know, it wasn't a surprise to anybody that I wanted to help animals and work with animals when I went off to college. And so, you know, the only pathway, like a lot of uh, students my age, um, you know, going from high school to college, think about becoming a veterinarian because they don't know about all the different opportunities that are out there. And so after my freshman year at Penn State, they, um, they opened up a brand new major called wildlife science. And I didn't even have to read about it. As soon as I saw wildlife science, I knew that was exactly the major for me. And so I switched majors and became a wildlife science uh, undergraduate major and started taking classes that to me were just truly exciting and that I was passionate about and gave me the tools that I needed to um, to be successful later on in, in my um, graduate career and, and then in my professional career. And what sort of geared you into into the marine sciences because uh, you do focus more on marine sciences, right? I do, yeah. So when I was um, an undergraduate at Penn State, I was really eager to have a field experience or a research experience. And I was looking for professors who were doing research and I wanted to volunteer my time to to be a field assistant or research assistant with them. And no one was very excited about taking me into their lab or out in the field. And so I, I you know, kept um, 
kept finding roadblocks in the way. And so I started looking for opportunities away from Penn State. And I was fortunate to find an organization called the Student Conservation Association. And they're still around, which is fabulous. And every year they place students and volunteers in national parks across the country. And so I, uh, you know, I found a little flyer on a bulletin board at Penn State. They had those little cards back then that you would fill out and they would send you a brochure and some information. And when I got the brochure and the information, it was basically an application form and, um, and descriptions of all the different projects that they needed volunteers to work in in the national parks. And so I, uh, I read through all the descriptions. There were plenty to choose from. And my number one choice was to go work uh, uh, with wolves up at Isle Royal National Park. My second choice was to work with wild horses out in um, Northern California. And my third choice was to go work with the critically endangered Kemp's Ridley sea turtle in Texas at Padre Island National Seashore. And so I didn't get my first choice and I didn't get my second choice, but I got a call from Padre Island National Seashore and they said, we want you to join us this summer. And, um, I was on a bus a couple of weeks later from New York City to Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, got to Padre Island. And, you know, you have all these visions of what Texas is going to be like. There were going to be cowboys and their horses were going to be tied up and they were going to be riding their horses up and down the street. It was nothing like that. It was mostly, you know, surfers who were down there at that time and, and, uh, and just open space and and wonderful natural areas and um, just pristine um, wilderness in some places and so I just I, you know I fell in love with Texas I fell in love with the beaches and I got to work with a critically endangered sea turtle that summer and I had always loved the ocean and had always loved uh, being on the beach and being on the water. And so that was really a turning point for me. And I remember going back to Penn State after that summer experience. And I was sitting in one of my wildlife science classes. I think it was wildlife management. And we were talking about different animals and how you manage these different animals. And the classes were always focused on white-tailed deer or bear or grouse, you know, things that people hunt. I remember raising my hand and saying, well, what about sea turtles? How do sea turtles fit into this framework that we're discussing? And my professor started laughing and he said, sea turtles aren't wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew at that point that, you know, I was in a major that was going to give me some really good tools, but it wasn't a marine science focused curriculum and that I would need more. And, and so when I was a, a senior, I decided to do all my senior classes, which were all electives, at Texas A&M University because I could take those marine science classes at Texas A&M University, transfer them back to Penn State, and still graduate from Penn State with that nice, solid marine science uh, and marine biology background. So. 
that was kind of how I filled in the gaps as an undergraduate. And, and then, you know, I was in Texas and I was looking for a job and I was about to apply to graduate school here. And I saw this advertisement for a student worker to help take care of the fish in the aquaria that were owned by Texas Sea Grant. So when I was about, I guess I was 22 years old at the time, I applied for a job to work with Texas Sea Grant and I was hired to feed the fish and clean the fish and, and help in, in their marine education program. So it's, uh, it's kind of, you know, one of those great stories where things just happen and there are lots of forks in the road and lots of opportunities along the way. And you just fall into something that, uh, that really uh, is meaningful uh, at that moment, but potentially meaningful later on down the road as well. And, I got into graduate school here at Texas A&M. Um, uh, my major professor is a marine biologist. She's still here. And just really um, one of the best invertebrate biologists uh, in, in the world. And so I was fortunate that she was willing to take me on and, uh, and that Texas A&M gave me an opportunity to pursue a degree in zoology with an emphasis on marine biology. Yeah. So. And so that's that's how your journey began. And yeah. what does a typical month look like for you right now at the stage where you're at currently in your career? Well, typically now I'm sitting at a computer <laughs> and and I'm I'm pushing paper is probably the best way to describe it. So, you know, I got into this business because I loved being outdoors and I loved working with animals and I loved being hands-on. But there comes a point, you know, when you get to be in your 40s or 50s where, you know, your, your ability to, to do those things sometimes um, is reduced because of, you know, your physical ability, your mental ability or your job. And so as I became, um, uh, more seasoned and, 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 and progressed in my career. There were different needs for my time to be a decision maker rather than the person who is in the field doing the really fun work. But I try to get out in the field and do the really fun work as often as I can. Yeah. And it's just not often enough uh, for me, so. And in, in your career, you know, at the early stages when you had a lot of hands-on work, was there any experience you shared with um, with an animal that kind of uh, impacted you in a positive way or in a negative way? An experience that kind of stands out for you in your in your memories, basically. I have so many of them. It's it's really hard to to pick just one. So I can I can share a couple of them uh, with you. Um, so as a graduate student at Texas A&M University, when I was working on my uh, doctoral program, I was studying Oliver Ridley sea turtles in Costa Rica in a very remote location in a national park, the Guanacaste National Park, which is in the northwestern part of the country. And the field site where we were working is about a five hour hike 
from the headquarters of the park. And so not many people are willing to do a five-hour hike over, over a mountain. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so we were really isolated. We didn't have electricity. Uh, we were living in what I'll call primitive conditions. And I was living there for six months at a time, uh, which was really spectacular for me because I had always dreamed of, of living with monkeys. And, and so there I was living in the jungle with monkeys and crocodiles and snakes and army ants and, and everything just immersed in that, um, that beautiful little uh, dry tropical forest ecosystem with a little one kilometer beach that the Olive Ridleys loved. And they would come and do their thing once a month. They would gather in front of the beach and then as if somebody blew a horn or uh, flipped a switch, all the females would crawl up the beach and start laying their eggs in synchrony. And so the beach, that one kilometer beach, would sometimes be filled with sea turtles. And you'd have to kind of juggle around the sea turtles mm-hmm. to walk and, and uh, collect your data because there were so many turtles on the beach. And it was a fabulous place to, to live for six months and, and to work. And so one year, and this was, this was just, you know, a once in a lifetime experience. There was no wind, the sea was calm. We were expecting the turtles to come and nest any day. And they showed up offshore and there were thousands of them just swimming back and forth in front of the beach. And on a typical day, the the waves would be about you know, six to 10 feet high and dangerous to swim in. But that day it was just calm and it was a gift. And I grabbed a, a, my snorkel, my fins and my mask and I went out and I swam with those female turtles and they were all over me. They, there were 10 above me, 10 below me, 10 on either side of me. Mm-hmm. And they were just swimming by, just looking at me and just so interested in, in who I was and what I was. And they would just swim by. And, and, and it felt like I was in a dream. <laughs> and That it, sounds like the dream. Yeah. It was. It was a dream. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have a camera, an underwater camera. And I didn't have an underwater video. So I couldn't, I couldn't record it at the time. But even just, you know, thinking about it now just gives me chills because it was really like nothing I've ever experienced with any kind of wildlife where, you know, they seemed to accept who I was and they were just, they were just doing their thing and waiting until that horn blew or that light switch went off so they could go and lay their eggs. And I think once they realized I wasn't a threat to them, they were just like, okay, she's cool. (laughs) So I spent hours just swimming with the turtles and it, it just, it was just the thrill of a lifetime. Do you know why there were so many in in such a small place? Is there a reason for that? Well, there is a reason for that. We still don't fully understand the reason for that. And there are places uh, around the world that this species prefers to nest in these synchronous aggregations. And so Costa Rica has two of those sites. uh, there are a couple of beaches like that in Nicaragua. And then there are some beaches in India, over in the Indian Ocean. 
And then over in French Guiana, Suriname, there is also a, a nesting aggregation. And so they all receive the same cues to come to the beaches at about the same time. And they all receive the same cues to emerge onto the beach to lay their eggs at the same time. But when they're done, they all go in different directions. And that was part of my research that I was doing. I put transmitters on the turtles because there was this long-standing hypothesis that these turtles migrated in schools like fish or in pods like whales and that they seemed to march up the beach in these little clusters. And so there was a, a belief that they migrated away from the beach uh, as, as groups. And so what I did was I waited till you know, a, we saw a group of turtles coming up on the beach and there might've been five, six or seven turtles in that group or cluster. And we'd catch them, we'd um, put satellite transmitters on them and then we'd track their migrations when they were done for the nesting season. And if you put six transmitters on six turtles, they'd go in six different directions and they'd migrate as far north as Mexico as far south as Peru. And so they, um, they whatever those cues are, <laughs> they get them at the same time uh, and, and, and they, uh, they behave similarly. And so uh, a lot of people believe that the behavior is um, one that increases the chance of survival of their eggs and hatchlings which is a you know, reasonable explanation. But if that is the reason why this behavior evolved in this sea turtle, why didn't it evolve in the other species of sea turtles? And that's what is really a, a huge mystery. But to complicate it even more, this species also nests individually or solitarily at beaches just next door to where they nest in synchronous aggregations. So not all the females are nesting in synchronous aggregations. There are just as many of them nesting individually along that entire uh, coastline where, where you find them. So there's really a, a, an interesting question here uh, as to why some of them do and some of them don't. And I think that you know, what I've learned to appreciate is that there's a lot of variation in behavior in sea turtles, just like there, there is in, in all animals mm -hmm. and humans included, and that they have incredible flexibility and adaptability to be able to um, compensate for different changing conditions in their environment. So some years it's really dry, some years it's really wet, some years it's warmer than others. And I think that the females are able to put their nests and their offspring in places that are gonna be advantageous to their offspring given different scenarios that are changing all the time in the ocean as well as on land. Wow, I mean, I feel like everything you you hear or what most people hear about sea turtles is, is a, a lot of mystery behind them from different types of sea turtles within, like you said, within the species themselves, they do um, very different things. Would you say that that mystery about them is something that has kept you interested in them for so long? 
Absolutely. So my very first job that I told you about in Texas at Padre Island National Seashore when I was a, a sophomore uh, uh, at the university, my very first day of work, I went out to the beach with my boss and a sea turtle had washed up dead on, on the shoreline. And it was this beautiful hawksbill sea turtle, the kind of sea turtle that people used to kill to make jewelry out of and hair combs and brushes and all sorts of things. And it was just sitting there. It was, you know, maybe uh, about 24 inches long. And I remember asking my boss, why did the turtle die? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, where did it come from? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, do you know where it was going? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> and no I... Idea. And I said, do you know how old it is or was? And he said, I don't know. And I remember at first thinking my boss really doesn't know a lot about sea turtles. But when I started looking into it a little further, what I realized was that nobody really knew that much no, about sea yeah. turtles. And there's still so many questions that we can't answer. And, um, and, and so for me, sea turtles have always been a mystery. And for so many people, they, they still are a mystery. And there's still so much to learn, not just about sea turtles, but our, our oceans in general. And there's been so much emphasis uh, on land, a lot less emphasis in our oceans. And we're still trying to understand how our ocean functions in, in many places around the, the planet. And to me, that's just mind blowing that it's 2022 and we still don't fully understand um, our oceans and, and the value they bring, the diversity they, they have and, um, and the threats that, uh, that they face now and, and in the future. What do you think is missing from, like you just said, that the, our oceans are so valuable and, and there's so much that, that maybe we as humans can do to kind of lower our our um, pollution processes. What do you think is missing in order to get people to listen and to actively do um, something to course correct so we... So we take better care of our oceans. Do you think? Um, what do you think is the key to kind of get people to wake up and and do something? That's a great question, and I and I think that you know there are a lot of people who have um, thought about that, who are working to um, try to engage broader audiences, and so. You know, if you look at the United States, for example, or really any country, um, the coastline is an important part uh, in terms of commerce, in terms of, of um, nutrition, um, and in terms of fuel. So it really is a critical area for, for many countries, but not that many people live on the coast compared to those that live interior. And so there are a lot of people who never have seen the ocean. Uh, there are a lot of people who may have seen it once or twice. And there are a lot of people who are very focused on what happens in their backyard and in their community and not so much um, beyond their fence line. And it's hard to 
get people to support something if they don't love it, mm -hmm. if they don't see the value of it, and if it's not impacting their lifestyle. So, you know, you take somebody in an interior state in the United States, it could be Colorado, it could be Kansas, I don't want to pick on those people. Um, but, you know, if, if, if they're going to the grocery store and they're getting their food and they're not buying and depending on seafood, um, then if, if our oceans stop producing um, fish, it won't really matter to them because they weren't eating fish anyway and they can eat other things. And that's, that's just the way, you know, people, people think. And, and, you know, the, I guess the good news is there are a lot of people who do care about our oceans. And there are a lot of people in leadership positions who care about our oceans. And they're trying to push forward a greater awareness and understanding about the need to protect our oceans because they do all sorts of things uh, like regulate and moderate our climate, which is important to interior populations. And so the more we can help people who are not coastal understand the importance of our oceans, I think the, the, the more progress we will make going forward, but it's still a heavy lift. And, you know, I mean, you just take a look at the last couple of years and some of the, the climate disasters we've experienced around the world. And the science behind climate change is really solid and has been very solid for many years. And yet there are a lot of people who don't either don't believe or don't want to make changes mm -hmm. that will um, ensure that my children and my children's children will have a planet that is sustainable uh, into the future. And so it's really hard to affect change until something becomes a crisis. Yeah. And even when it becomes a crisis, sometimes it's hard to affect change. And I think we've seen that recently with COVID. Uh, you know, we, we've certainly been living uh, under a pandemic crises, multiple crises related to COVID. And, um, and I think people have a little bit of crisis fatigue at this point in time. And, and, and so that also plays into it. But um, going back to your original question, you know, I think education is critical. And I think that um, scientists need to do a better job of communicating their science to a general population. And helping the public understand what's happening and what we need to do to make some course corrections to ensure that our planet is sustainable for future generations. It's um, interesting to think about what you just mentioned it in the beginning, that it's important for people to care about something they need to see the value in it first, right? And so how can people, that's a good question, like how can people see the value in the ocean? And then I mean people who ne don't necessarily live next to the ocean. Like what, what value does the ocean have to people who might be listening right now and have maybe seen the ocean two times in their life and they don't really care maybe, I don't know. But yeah, 
what value can they have from the ocean? Well, the ocean plays a significant role in, in our global climate. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the biggest problems um, that scientists have been studying is um, the increasing carbon in, in our ocean and the impact that's having um, on the animals that live there but also on our, on our climate. And so those are things that scientists are gonna to continue to study and, um, and hopefully communicate to the public so that they're aware that um, at some point, um, we may be tipping the scales and, and there, there will be, and we've already seen um, things like um, what we call heat waves in the ocean um, and large scale areas or big areas where animals succumb to the heat in the ocean. Um, we've also seen persistent and large harmful algal blooms occurring all across the globe. And those um, harmful algal blooms are, are, have multiple causes. Um, it's not just carbon, um, it's other nutrients that uh, go into the watershed um, through farming and agricultural runoff and sewer systems and, and things like that. And then there are these incredible al algal blooms in certain areas and those algal blooms uh, basically consume all the oxygen and the animals in those areas often die uh, in large numbers and we have some really significant areas, um, one in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana and Texas that grows and shrinks in size every year and um, is never really shrinking uh, to a small size. It, it's just a little less big than it was the previous year. So we've got a number of, of what I'll call symptoms that are real apparent and have an impact on the animals that live there and on human populations as well. And so while it may seem like it's only happening in the water or it's only happening in the coastal populations, all of those things impact interior populations too. So climate and weather um, are linked and, um, and we're gonna see more intense weather events uh, in, in the years to come uh, because of, of our ocean and our changing climate that is having a direct impact on the ocean as well as the atmosphere. Yeah, you hear it a lot that, um, and that's what I've known at least, is that the ocean is also sort of our, it regulates our climate, it regulates our the temperature that people in the middle of the United States or in the middle of Europe, um, it regulates that climate that we have and the temperature. And that, for example, I've, I read once in an article that the reason why we can live here in the north of Europe, basically, is that because, you know, the, um, the Gulf Stream, which takes warm water basically from the warmer parts of the ocean and probably in the Caribbean and Mexico and then all the way up to the east of the United States and then crosses the Atlantic 
um, to Europe and because of that warm water that we can actually live here that we here that we have an yeah an, a normal climate here and it's quite yeah. interesting it's like a sort of our heating system for the world sort of absolutely absolutely heating and cooling yeah and and so it's underappreciated for that um, service that it provides us and as as uh as our climate changes, there are going to be different places on land that are going to be livable and other that are not so livable. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so, you know, the El Nino phenomenon is, is a great example of a, a climate phenomenon that impacts people on land. And so every few years there is an El Nino in, in the Pacific Ocean. And um, what happens typically is that the cold water, um, which comes up to the surface uh, in a process known as upwelling, that's the normal process. But during an El Nino, the water warms and that upwelling is not happening. And, and so the, the water along the west coast of the United States becomes significantly warmer. Mm -hmm. And that impacts the climate across the United States and across Europe and elsewhere. And, and so people have studied this phenomenon for years. And you can see um, changes in, in certain areas of our planet that are associated with El Nino to the point where, you know, some years it's good to, to grow wheat in the Midwestern United States because there's uh, uh, an El Nino. And then other years, it's not good because there's a La Nina. And so that's the alternate uh, pattern that is driven by oceanographic conditions, the La Nina. So right now here in Texas, you know, we are um, in a La Nina uh, and, and or La Nina year, as, as some people call it. And we're experiencing very warm temperatures, very dry temperatures. We haven't seen it this warm and this dry since 2011. During a previous La Nina, that was just as intense as, as this one seems to be. Mm -hmm. And so these cycles are, are really predictable. And so, you know, we've learned to sort of live with these predictable cycles of El Nino, La Nina. But there are lots of other cycles that are becoming um, new cycles, less predictable, and... Um, and, and scientists are, are studying them and trying to better understand uh, the impact they're going to have on, on, um, on our climate, on our ability to grow food and crops, on our ability to live in, in certain places, and our ability to you know, provide all the, the fuel that we need to um, fuel our, our communities. So, you know, when you think about the three most important things to humans, it's, it's you know, where, where can we live, how can we eat, and how can we fuel our homes and our cars and our lifestyle? Those really are the three necessities, and, and those are all going to be compromised um, in the future by changing climate. Um, I'm just curious because I'm sure in, in your years of experience, you've had this moment while you're doing field work 
where there's um, uh, environmental phenomenon going on or happening or or you've seen the consequences of the change in, in the environment, if, if you could share that experience with us. Yeah, so I'll talk about the one that I think has been most significant in my lifetime and, and one that has, um, has entered my life at different points in my career. And so when I was um, working on my master's degree, I was, I was here in Texas and I was studying loggerhead sea turtles in the, in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. And at that time, uh, they were washing up dead by the hundreds because they were being captured uh, incidentally by, um, by fishing, um, mainly uh, shrimp trawl fishing. And, and so I was interested in using those animals to study their diet. And so as a turtle would wash ashore, I would do a necropsy on it and I would save its intestinal contents uh, and, and then sort through them later on in the laboratory to try to better understand what they were feeding and, and more importantly, where they were feeding. Because I thought that if we could identify areas where they were feeding, we could close those areas to fishing and save the turtles. So that was kind of the original goal of my project. And as I started collecting intestinal samples and going through them, I started finding a lot of garbage in, in, their, um, in their intestinal tracts. And I was finding cardboard, I was finding glass, I was finding aluminum, I was finding plastic, I was finding rope. And so at the end of my study, what I found was that well over 50% of the turtles that I sampled, and I sampled uh, over 100 of them, uh, over 50% of them had some kind of garbage in their intestinal tracts. And, um, and so I tried to publish that study, just the part about the garbage, and I, my paper was rejected from scientific journals because they said that was not science. Now, this was back in the 1980s, and this was before we had a proliferation of single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. And so at that time, people were actually dumping garbage offshore yeah. um, back in the 70s and 80s. And then um, the, the government uh, passed the Marine Pollution Act and banned garbage dumping offshore. And so a lot of the garbage I was finding in the turtles at that time was from garbage that was dumped offshore by people who were out on ships. It could have been the cruise industry, could have been just recreational fishermen, could have been commercial fishermen, could have been people working on oil rigs. But that's where you know garbage was coming from because there were no regulations. Mm -hmm. And then um, my data were actually used to help support the Marine Pollution Act and to um, uh, further uh, expand that policy to um, uh, finally ban offshore, offshore dumping. And so I was really excited because I was so naive back then. I thought, well, that's it. You know, our marine, marine pollution problem is solved. And, it's over. <laughs> and it's done, right? But then, you know, then we had a proliferation of single-use plastics. And, you know, when I, was, when I was your age, people didn't buy bottled water. We had, you know, 
fountains. That's where you got water and you maybe had a, a, a sports bottle that you'd fill up with water and that was yeah. how you got water. Otherwise you, you were thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there were aluminum cans with soda and and other kinds of drink. We didn't have single use plastics um, everywhere for everything. Yeah. And so I'll fast forward years later when I'm um, here at Texas Sea Grant and uh, I'm also a faculty member in the Department of Oceanography here and I uh, took on a graduate student to study um, sea turtles in Costa Rica and, and part of her project involved looking at some sea turtles that were captured by fisheries in the Eastern Pacific Ocean near that area that is commonly known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And so these turtles were collected in the 90s and 2000s. They, as I already mentioned, were captured in fisheries, so we know how they died. And they were a great um, opportunity just to see what sea turtles in the Pacific Ocean were feeding on. And that was the intent of our study was to help us understand their feeding behavior and, and feeding ecology. And as soon as we started opening up those um, intestinal tracts from those turtles, we started finding tons of plastic from single use plastic, bottle caps. There was one turtle that had about 32 bottle caps inside its stomach. Wow. Um, plastic bags, pieces of plastic wrappers, um, one turtle had an entire toothbrush in its stomach and it had bitten it in two places. So the toothbrush was in, in three pieces in that turtle's stomach. And, and so after that study <clears throat> was finished, excuse me, we found over 70% of those turtles had ingested some sort of plastic and in very large quantities that were alarming. Mm -hmm. um, now this was in um, in uh, around 20, 2012. And so by then the scientific journals were interested in, in, in publishing our, our data and, and learning that sea turtles in the Eastern Pacific Ocean were eating a lot of plastic. Yeah. And, um, and so that was, that was really good um, that we were able to get that study published and, and it got some attention. But a couple of years later, um, another graduate student of mine, um, who's pretty famous, her name is Christine Figner, and um, she was also doing research out in the Eastern Pacific Ocean. She was on a boat one day. She was catching turtles with the intent of putting uh, satellite transmitters on their shells to track their migrations from Costa Rica. And one day she and her team pulled a turtle onto the boat and they noticed that that turtle had something in its nostril. And so at first they thought, oh, it's a barnacle or it's a worm. And she had the, the great idea to start video, videoing the extraction of whatever that was living in that turtle's nostril. And so they took a little uh, tool and started tugging on on the thing in the turtle's nostril and it turned out to be a plastic straw. Mm. And um, as they tugged and pulled out that plastic straw, you could see the turtle was in pain. The turtle's nostril started bleeding 
and the good news was that the turtle was able to actually breathe normally after they removed that straw and they cleaned it up and um, they released it to the wild and they actually have seen that turtle a couple of times since they extracted that straw and it was a male turtle and he's doing just fine Um, but her video was so raw and and so timely and i remember she she contacted me and she said i've got this video i'm going to send it to you i really would like to post it on youtube i think it's really important for people to understand how plastic impacts wildlife and and this is the video that will help them understand that and i remember i couldn't even watch the video as soon as i saw them tugging on the straw i was i was done <laughs> and I, I said, you have got to put that video on YouTube. Yeah. And it took her about eight hours to upload that video from, uh, <laughs> from Costa Rica because she didn't have good bandwidth and it was, it was a pretty big video. And within minutes of posting it, it just started getting views. And, um, and within days, it had hundreds of thousands of views. And it coincided with a time when there were a lot of uh, organizations that were trying to educate the public about the the perils of single-use plastic and how we needed to start making changes in our personal lives to reduce single-use plastics and straws were a great place to start we could all just stop using straws they're not essential uh, to most people and that's a great place to start and so that video really was a catalyst for a movement that had already begun and um it really took off after christine's video and um and so i remember at that point thinking you know i've i've studied sea turtles eating plastic for decades now um i've published papers in journals for decades now i haven't done anything to educate the public about sea turtles and the problems with plastics in in our ocean um so chris inspired me to do more because she started doing more it wasn't like she just posted a video and then that was it she started talking to school groups she started um promoting these organizations that were helping um to uh increase public awareness about marine plastics and so I, um, I had saved all the plastic that I had um, taken out of sea turtle intestinal tracts, and I made these little traveling exhibits. And I started going to schools and to other places that would have me. And I started speaking about the sea turtles that I studied and the plastic that they ate and the impact that plastic is having on sea turtles and other animals in, in our oceans. And... Um, and I haven't done much in, in the last couple of years since COVID other than a, a few webinars. Um, and I hope to get, get going again. But, um, but to me, it, 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 she helped me understand that as a scientist, uh, I can and I should do more. And that was really a, a, a watershed moment for me. And, and Christine has devoted her life to, um, to helping people become more aware about marine plastics. And I'm really proud of everything she's done to, yeah. to build that awareness. It, it's obviously one thing to do all the research 
and to yeah do all the research and investigate everything and then it's the second thing to sort of share the message mm-hmm. with with as much people as possible basically and so that people can learn from it and that's yeah. that's the second part and yeah but i think yeah. nowadays we were just telling us about you know posting that video on youtube nowadays it's so it's so easy to reach a lot of people with video content or or something else or or like this so it gets easier but it must be for you through, throughout your career um it must be a big change that you know now this is becoming more and more important to let people know sort of like hey this is going on like the big audience yeah yeah and and you know it's it's a challenge for for all of us because there's there's so many different social media opportunities now and there's so many people who are out there trying to get attention and so how do you how do you get attention in that very big crowd uh and and some of it is luck some of it is um you know continued sustained effort to to build audience and um and then you know to stay abreast of the changes in social media right and it's evolving so quickly that you really have to have to spend a lot of effort um understanding um new ways to to reach people and 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 what people like and and it shifts and changes and you know we saw that during covid right i you know i i had never been on tiktok before covid and covid gave me an opportunity to you know to to check out tiktok and then i was hooked for for days i couldn't get off tiktok and uh and it's like you know it's like potato chips you can't eat just one and you can't just you know watch one minute of tiktok you're you're in it for for a while so you know it's it's wonderful um to have these technologies and to be able to use them to reach greater audiences and um but it's but it's a challenge to to keep that audience and to find new new audiences and and new people who will who will spread your message and 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 share your enthusiasm and passion. I think and and I want to hear your opinion on this, but you started off at such a young age being so immersed in nature and the environment and do you and maybe that sparked something in you in in your mindset or or your aspirations to kind of look at the way you live your life maybe personally or or like you said how you how you use single use plastics or how you can diminish that do you think that a key factor that's missing is that nowadays a lot of people are disconnected from nature and then this doesn't allow people to connect and and realize the importance of nature and how you can develop yourself with the help of it and and also appreciate and life a little bit better. Yeah. I well, I think we've been disconnected from nature for a very long time and and I think that that disconnect grows larger and and broader and deeper uh every every year. But I think that there are many people who have always valued nature 
mm-hmm. um, will always value nature and will pass that down to their children and their children's children. And I think that uh, the pandemic opened a lot of people's eyes to how they were living and forced them to go outdoors and remember how beautiful it is outdoors and how nature can fulfill our lives in a way that our lives have not been fulfilled without it. And, and so I'm, I'm actually thankful uh, that the pandemic occurred for that one very reason, because I think that people stopped to, to really examine how they were living. And a lot of people made changes, uh, changes to where they work, how they work, where they live, how they live, and how they recreate. And we've seen increases in, in um, our national parks here in the United States. People are flooding national parks. Mm-hmm. People are, you know, we're buying recreational vehicles at a pace that we hadn't seen in years. Uh, people want that experience. And, and I hope that continues to grow because I think that that's healthy for us and I think it's healthy for our planet because the more people get out and, and have that natural experience, the more they will want to protect those, um, those environments. And, and so, you know, every now and again, you'll see the news share a story about you know, Yellowstone National Park or Yosemite National Park and how you know, it's overrun with tourists this summer and, and you know, you need a reservation and, and how uncomfortable it is. But to me, that's wonderful that people are fighting to get out to our national parks and, and want more. And, and that means we'll have more support for these areas and more appreciation for these areas. So, so I hope that continues. And, and I think that, um, that the last few years were really a good sign of, of how people view and value our, our, our wild places. Yeah, I think what we already discussed, the more people value nature in a better way, the better it is for, for nature as well. Like the closer we get again to, to nature and not be like not a part of nature, um, the better it is. So what what would be for you personally, you've, you've spent a lot of time in nature, in the, from the jungles in Costa Rica to on the ocean, swimming with turtles. Um, what have been maybe your top three lessons that you have sort of learned in terms of your your own mental health or, or your way of thinking or seeing the world? What are some of your, you know, top tips for people who haven't experienced everything that you've experienced? Yeah, great question. So um, drawing from my my first um, big experience of living in the dry tropical forest of Costa Rica, being there for six months and seeing very few people during that time and, and not having access to things like televisions and news and things like that, what I learned was that you know, I, I could live with a lot less in my life, a lot less in terms of um, uh, possessions, <laughs> a 
a lot less in terms of um, what society kind of tells us we need to have in our lives. Yeah. And I emerged from that experience, and I remember coming back to Texas, and all my friends thought I was just a little weird after that experience because I was very quiet, and I was very reflective. And I and I had spent six months being very quiet and very reflective when I was in the, you know, in the jungle, and and I I had a calmness, really an inner peace um, that I had gained after those six months and people just seem to want to disturb that inner peace yeah. <laughs> and, and and i kept it for a real long time yeah and and every now and again i have to remind myself um of the inner peace that i feel when i go out in into nature uh and and that really is um is something i learned uh when i was in the jungle um more recently, as you know, I sit here at my computer and I spend my most of my days in meetings, either on Zoom or in person, answering emails, signing documents, doing things that are completely administrative. When I do have that opportunity to go out in the field, I find that I love to just turn off everything. Yeah. And I just want to be in that moment. And whether it's in a boat on the bay or on the ocean or just sitting on a beach, I just want to be in that moment. And I get sad when I go to these places and I see people on their phones mm. and they're on the beach and they're taking pictures and they're spending their entire time on their phone. And they're not really getting that experience of disconnecting and appreciating the environment that they're in. So for me, it's a, it's a way still to uh, unplug and to find that inner peace that that I love and and need and um, it's refreshing because when I do come back to my office and I am sitting in front of a computer things don't seem to be so important anymore yeah. <laughs> it resets your it yeah. does it does so um, so from the early part of my career to the late part of my career you know my experience in nature has always done the same thing for me. Um, whether it's a big dose or a little dose, it's still, I think, so important. And every day, I start my day by sitting in my yard. We've got um, big mature trees in my yard. Uh, we've got a little over an acre. There's a lot of wildlife that lives in my yard. And so I, I know I know the birds that are nesting in my yard and um this morning um they've got four babies this is their second nest um and one of the parents got caught in my screened in porch this morning and i quickly was able to to get her out of my porch while her mate was flying back and forth just so stressed out because she was caught in my porch and um and they nest on the other side of my house and their babies were waiting for food. So, um, so I'm always tuned into into you know what's going on right in my backyard, and I and I get so much pleasure from knowing you know what's there, what they're doing, and how they're living. And you know, last night 
a coyote ran by me as I was sitting on my steps last week. <laughs> there was an armadillo in my yard that my dogs were trying to chase after, and I stopped them. So we've got a lot of wildlife right in my yeah. backyard, and I just I, I love watching them. I love um, knowing about their behaviors and their lives, and and so I I try to do a, a daily dose every morning, and then every evening. Uh, when I when I come home of, of seeing who's where and what they're doing and and how they're living and and that's my that's my way of, of getting back into nature in a very small way uh, every day. It's a great tip because uh, you know not everyone has the, the 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 comfort or has the ability to be in nature a lot. Like I'm working the whole day as well and. You know, I don't. I, I would rather spend my days um, going scuba diving or walking in a forest. But you know, I simply can't. You have to work. But spending that little time, um, for example, on the start of your day or the end of the day, just you know, ten minutes already, it's better than nothing. Yeah, I think that's a great tip for people who you know don't have too much time that you can still yeah. make it work. You can go even if you don't have a backyard. You can go to. A local park and just watch some birds or squirrels yeah, yeah. there's a lot exactly there's a lot you can it's a great way to start your day and and you know even at lunchtime you know if, if you have the ability to go walk to an area that has some trees and grass you can quickly immerse yourself yeah. in, in that little habitat and watch butterflies or birds or squirrels or you know whatever is there and really, really just pay attention to, to what's happening right in, in your area and, mm -hmm. and, and feel that same inner peace that uh, one feels um, when they go off to a wilderness area for a few days or a week. So you can capture small moments like that. And those small moments just, for me, refresh me and, um, and make me feel make me feel whole yeah i think that's what we all need sometimes absolutely absolutely cool so is there anything to to bring this to an end is there anything you're currently working on that you would like you know to to tell people about or if people want to know more and learn more about the work you're doing what can they do how can they find you and and your organization yeah, so I haven't talked much about my organization, but my organization really is a, a wonderful fit for me because we, um, we support research and science that is applied and we try to make it actionable. And so, you know, certainly we want the science we support to be published in scientific journals because that is the gold seal of approval. But we also want it to be used by our coastal communities and our resource managers and politicians and, and the public. And so um, every year we support about a million dollars in, in research projects in addition, we also have an extension team of folks who are located across the coast from Beaumont down to Brownsville. And it's their job to live in and work with the coastal communities to understand their needs and to help me understand 
what their problems are that need to be addressed with science. And so they share information up here with us about what the coastal community needs are. We support the research that needs to solve those problems and we communicate that back down to the coastal community. So we've got this wonderful two-way flow of information that is happening. And the whole goal here is that the science is going to be put to use and not just end up in a journal that nobody other than other scientists are going to read. And so I think that's really powerful, uh, a powerful model that sea grant programs across the United States uh, employ. Uh, um, and it's that integration of research extension as well as education. And it's our job to take science and communicate it to the public so that it can make a difference mm. in, um, for our natural resources and for the people who depend on them. And so it's a wonderful place to, to work. It's a, a wonderful organization that um, produces some incredible impacts and accomplishments every year. And we're here to serve the needs of Texas and Texans. And we're nimble enough that we can you know, respond to hurricanes very quickly, uh, quicker than any of the federal agencies can. We can respond to um, harmful algal blooms like red tides. We can respond to um, any of the coastal community needs. If there's, you know, a crash in the fisheries, we're out there to help. We're out there to train fishermen to teach them how to reduce um, catching sea turtles accidentally. We're out there to help fishermen um, learn how to, um, how to market their catch to um, stores that want to only purchase sustainable fish and shellfish. We're out there to help uh, coastal communities learn where they should build and where they shouldn't build to prevent flooding from occurring in their communities. So we're doing a lot of different things that are impactful and meaningful and relevant and it's just really um, a great way to to end my career um, working in an organization that helps so many people uh, every year so for our listeners they can um, keep up with with news updates on on your website on the texas Seagram website or twitter or what what are the social yeah. channels so we've Texas Sea Grant has Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and you know we've got different audiences on each one of those uh, different social media channels, and we've got an amazing communications team who are constantly um, developing new and engaging content, and I, I encourage you to really check it out in July because we do a lot for Plastic Free July, which has become kind of a a nationwide and, and probably worldwide phenomenon where people are challenged to um, give up some plastic that they use regularly for that month with the intent of getting them to give up that plastic forever. So uh, every July I give up some plastic. I haven't decided which one it's going to be, but I've got a few more days to uh, to think about it. And uh, and and so so if you check out our, our social media uh, channels, you'll you'll see it. We're also on YouTube uh, as well. I forgot to mention YouTube and um, and our 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 team just just produces some fabulous things. So 
Um, so I hope folks will, will check us out and uh, keep following us even after July. We do, we do so many wonderful programs. Um, formal education, informal education with kids, with adults, uh, in our coastal communities and, and elsewhere in our state. It's, uh, it's really just an incredible program. Yeah, I think you're doing some great things and it was uh, a pleasure to listen to you basically and you know see how much knowledge there is and experience and that's really awesome to just listen to and, and try to learn from. Yes, and, and provide a perspective for like we mentioned before people that that don't get to experience it, experience these things like like you did and other people in, in your field of work did so thank you so much for sitting with us and having this chat um, and we hope that that the message spread out there and that our listeners learn a few things about um, the environment conservation and and maybe spark a little interest in going out and spending more time in nature. And Thank you so much. And Plastic Free July. <laughs> and Plastic Free July. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to share bits and pieces of my life with you. And, and you know, it's, um, it's been an incredible journey. And most of it was unplanned. Um, a lot of it just happened because there were opportunities and, uh, and I took those opportunities. And so um, that's something that I try to encourage uh, students to, to do is to explore all their opportunities and, and not be afraid to, to seek, seek out things that look a little different, look um, maybe a little out of the box and, and to explore things when they're young and, and even when they're older. And, and so I think that um, has always been really important to me is to, is to, is to evolve and to adapt and, and to, to try those new things. So that's my message. Try, if you have never been outdoors, go out, give it go a try. Go out. <laughs> yeah, give it a try. That's the message. And it's, it's the best drug I know of. <laughs> yeah, no, it is true. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pam. Thanks.